0: We are in Champions League, man. That was my dilly next Dilly 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 dong. Come on.
1: Ancadamessi, Ancadamessi, Into sharing them. A Joe Chara has <laughs> it. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney.
2: Aguirre.
1: Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is Michael Loftman. Michael is the under 23 head coach and first team analyst with the Orlando Pirates in South Africa. So we're going to discuss cognitive bias. How does it affect us? How does it hurt us? How can we check for it? And then how does it connect to personal growth along with development as a coach really really interesting topic I think you're going to get a lot from it definitely a lot to think about from Michael's insight. so we'd love to hear your thoughts on this at Gary on Instagram at Gary on Twitter this week's episode is brought to you by playpositionally.com and Kieran Smith if you want to learn about positional play not only the theory but also how to implement it with your team then his online course at playpositionally.com is for you The course covers all the concepts, the training methodology. It also has drills, exercises that you need to work with your team. You can sign up and read more at playpositionally.com. Really excited to check it out. His work is top class, as everyone in the coaching community is well aware, I'm sure. Ciarán was on the podcast just a few weeks ago. So if you haven't heard it, check it out and definitely check out playpositionally.com. Okay, here's Michael. Enjoy.
0: Michael, thanks so much for joining me today. Excited to have you on. No no problem at all. No,
2: thanks for having me.
0: A question that I'd like to ask you, just has your philosophy changed from moving to South Africa or what has changed?
2: Uh, I would say due to my background being based in psychology, I don't think my overall uh, philosophy has changed too much. I just think the detail around um, how to get your philosophy across has changed a fair bit. And obviously, when you dip into different cultures, you realize that that people learn differently and people have different expectations of the coach and the way that he delivers his message. So I think the way that I deliver my philosophy has changed a lot. Um, And and yeah, through the experiences, I guess, uh, I've had to adapt as a coach, as a person, um, and how I'm dealing with players on a day-to-day basis. I think that's really been the key in terms of moving across cultures.
0: Brings us along nicely to cognitive bias and i know you've done some writing on it and you've you've posted some information on it can you explain what exactly it is and how it impacts coaches
2: um yeah sure so a cognitive bias is uh, basically a mistake or a misinterpretation or a use of misleading information to judge an act or an action or a process um and there's two particular biases which really impact i think football coaches Uh, One of them being uh, outcome bias. And I think this is a big one for coaches, especially at development level, where we're trying to um, educate players on the right decision-making. And this is based around where we judge uh, a decision that a player has made based on the outcome that happens as opposed to the actual decision that they made in the first place. So almost uh, to give an example would be uh, a striker, maybe 1v1 with the goalkeeper. Um, And he has a really poor shot that most keepers would save. But in the example where the ball goes into the net and he scores, we applaud the, the goal and the, uh, and the action. Whereas actually in, a, in the next game or in future games, the action that he just had wouldn't be successful. But because we praise it, the player now believes that he's doing well and he will keep repeating that action. Um, so that's one of the key, uh, uh, the key cognitive biases that we use. Um, and the second one is confirmation bias. Uh, confirmation bias is when we look for information that fits what we already believe. So we have a pre-judgment about a player before we watch him, for example, which may be based on the way that he looks, the football boots that he wears, or what someone has told us. And then because we have that idea, all we're now looking for when they're playing is to prove ourselves right, as opposed to having an objective uh, decision or judgment based on what we actually see. And I think that has a huge impact across academy football and senior football. Um, and I think you see it a lot with fans and pundits where they have these beliefs and they kind of look to prove themselves right on a regular basis.
0: Oh, the Pog, by example has to be huge in that, right?
2: Oh, oh, 100%. Because the media portrays him as someone who's struggling and isn't living up to the expectations. We look for those things to prove ourselves right. And as you can see, he's actually a player of huge quality. But we don't look for that if we don't believe it initially. <laughs> Our
0: social media stream, which we then follow accounts that align to our views, probably don't help us in that as well.
2: Oh, 100%. I think we're now, we're now accessing so much information from so many different people that our, our views are so heavily influenced before uh, we even get to make judgments ourselves. And when that comes to watching teams play, watching individuals play, uh, watching our own players play, um, and we're already a judgmental world as it is I think sometimes we judge a player based on the boots that he wears when he comes to trial or the haircut that he has you know it's I think it's a very typical example that we need to kind of move away from as coaches
0: does this go beyond the game so you know you mentioned that your two examples were development and then and basically you know how it impacts how we view the players within the structures but then if we view culture and this is something that I see where we view culture as basically everyone complying to the rules rather than express themselves freely is an easier way to manage culture is that is that a form of bias as well
2: Uh yeah definitely Oh, 100% uh, i think that uh, when it comes to dealing with culture and and bias we are it depends on where you're from as well actually i've had different, very different experiences working with culture in in uh, south africa than i have in zambia for example which is only a few hours away um, compared to work in, in England, but there's definitely a, in England, when I worked at clubs there, there was definitely a lack of freedom and expression, um, which I think came from coaching style and expectation of winning expectation of style of play and instructive coaching, uh, where the coach is instructing via the situation and not really allowing the player to express their own decisions. Um, I think working in South Africa and Zambia, particularly South Africa, players are self-taught almost up into a certain age because there isn't really much development coaching from the ages of when they're a small child from 3, 4, all the way up until 15, 16, when really they start to enter development structures. Um, so players are self-taught, they learn, they're free to make decisions, and you actually see a very different type of player uh, come out of that than you do when you're working in England with players with a, a heavy development structure from a young age
0: yeah let's stay on that so the so the fear of that player speaking for a lot of coaches here you would fear that player then gets to 16 17 and is resentful to coaching or is uncoachable but then you're saying that those players you know that develop differently what do they look like at that age group because we've never seen it
2: (laughs) yeah it's actually almost like getting a blank canvas it's actually a really special thing to deal with so when you have a player at 16 come through, I'm working with some now that are between 15 and 21 in our under-23s group. And the 15, 16-year-olds that have had no coaching, they almost uh, look at you for guidance in every situation. And if you don't give them the guidance, they're going to continue to make their own decisions, which is fine. And I've often felt like when working with players in England, they're, they're looking to the coach almost to to and it, to and guide them. And if you don't guide them, they're almost a little bit lost. Like, what do I do now? I'm, I'm 1v1 in wide area as well a South African player at 16 just tends to get the ball and go past them and perform any trick that he seems to feel that he's learnt. Whereas I think if a 12-year-old was coached in England, get the ball in a wide area, you go one we want to cross in. I think that's his only option or his only uh, his go-to move in that area because that's what's being coached. Yeah, so it's here you see things that we haven't seen in football. There's There's been moments where I've seen skills and tricks and 1v1 moves and and the outside of the boot that I haven't even coached or spoke to them about before. But just because they've had the freedom to experiment for a long period of time has meant their decision-making is so varied and unpredictable almost. And almost to the extent where it becomes concerning, because even I don't know what my own players are going to do in certain situations. So that's when they start to need that little bit of guidance in terms of the game model and principles. But it's very helpful for producing individual players that have a variety of 1v1 uh, abilities.
0: You work as an analyst at, at Orlando as well. So that's right. how do you deal with or how do you see bias as it, as it regards to watching a game, reviewing the game? Can we do that with too much emotion? Is there a timing? Is there something we should be aware of more here?
2: Uh well, it's funny you asked that question, that you, that you mentioned that one, because we actually, there's me and there's two other analysts, or there's one who's the assistant coach who watches five, six, seven games before uh, we play the opposition. Um, and the other analyst I work with also heavily watches all the details of every game, maybe six, seven games before as well, up to. And we always say that we don't want to discuss the games until we've watched individually, because we feel like if we discuss a game or we discuss an opposition, and then go and watch it. We're now going to be looking to prove or disprove the things that we've just discussed, um, as opposed to watching with a fresh mind. So as an analyst, my general advice to avoid biases is to watch the game and watch the opposition before discussing or before or before listening to social media and what people are saying about the game. Try and watch it with a neutral, um, neutral head and try and get rid of all the beliefs from last season or two seasons ago, because... The chances are you'll just look to prove the things that you're already aware of, and not really looking for the new potential detail that you might not have uh, have noticed before.
0: This is good. So, uh, I I was going to ask you how do we fight it or resist it, but I've already changed in my mindset to where like there's probably a lot of coaches sitting here listening, going, yeah. John over there, Susie over there, they have remarkable confirmation bias. My other coaches, but I don't, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you catch yourself doing it? I suppose would be a better question.
2: Yeah, I think it's very difficult. I think we all do it and it's just the extent to which we allow ourselves to do it. Um, and I think like a, a key example would be of sitting down and writing your KPIs out before you actually even watch a game. So that if you find yourself looking at things that aren't in your your KPIs, your key performance indicators, then uh, then maybe you're actually going off track. So often we'll have a framework of analysis that we look, go through the questions and we look for key details such as where is the space on the pitch during a block, etc. And we try and stay in those guidelines and, and yeah, as I said, try and keep a neutral head without discussing first. It's very, very difficult because I think emotion rules rules the human brain, which is another part of the book I'm actually writing. Uh, talking about whether how much of our intentional systems and our autopilot systems we use. So mm. it's very challenging.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I mean, we talk about the mental game and we talk about the importance of psychology and how how important is it, or why do we overlook the fact even that surely the the most important psychology is your psychology as a coach rather than because if you can't get that under. Control. You can forget about impacting or helping a player, right?
2: Yeah, well, 100%. I think a lot of it comes down to humility. And I think that's one of the things I've learned a lot in working in South Africa and Zambia. And it, it helps when you, you take yourself away from the coaches that you know and the people that you'd be worried about judging you to where you can go to an environment where you can actually actually be free to analyze yourself and free to make mistakes and free to make errors to really find yourself as a coach I remember always being one of the coaches that probably I lacked in the area of technical detail. Um, and I'd go on a coaching pitch and I'd want to get the structure nice and the organization and the relationship with the players. But probably the detail that went into my coaching wasn't good enough. And I think there was a time period where I was then scared to try implementing technical detail due to the judgment of other coaches and the judgment of players. But then being able to move a board away from that meant now I can experiment with those kind of things. Uh, and now I'd say that's probably massively helped my technical detail. But I think that's what it comes down to, being having humility to be able to accept your weaknesses and and actually identify them and work on them without being judged or worry about being judged.
0: Yeah, confidence as well. Confidence is a factor for coaching as well,
2: right? Eh? Oh, 100%. 100%. But you only gain confidence, or I've only ever gained confidence from experimenting and feeling free to do that. And I think players are similar. And Yeah, it's definitely similar for coaches. I think as soon as you're under pressure, where you're worried about judgment and and other people 's views it's very difficult to have genuine confidence unless you are really one hundred percent sure of your ability. but I think for a lot of young coaches um, I think it's difficult to walk on the pitch and have that level of confidence where you're where you're one hundred percent sure of what you're what you're going through and what you're discussing with the players
0: oh, i I was a way more confident coach at twenty three than I was or probably am right now because no the, the more you know the more you don't know <laughs> so, <Yeah.
2: isn't> it? <laughs> and the more the more people other people expect you to know as well as you as you do your qualifications and get more experience people have a higher expectation of your knowledge so it's always keeping up with what people expect of you as you move up the ladder and move to a more challenging role the expectation is that you have more and more detail and you have more and more experience and better structure and organisation so
0: yeah so there's now a pressure on you to actually deliver something that they haven't seen before but R- reality is, is that, you know, they've, everyone's seen it by this stage, right?
2: Oh, that exactly, 100%. I don't think there's anything magical. And I keep saying that to coaches here because a lot of coaches expect me to come and put on a, a session they've never seen in their life and it to just blow their mind away. And I say, sorry, I don't have anything, anything that's going to blow your mind away. Yet. A lot of the coaching is in the relationship with the players and the detail and managing yourself as a coach. I think, as I said, the psychology, side of it and the things you mentioned already they the that's the, the real important foundation for for top coaching
0: moving on to the effective forecast and then predicting how we will feel in the future I, i've never heard of this before so I can mean, you talk a little bit about it and how it's impacted you as a coach
2: yeah sure it was it come it came from a book a book that's just called thinking and then it's subtitle is the new science of decision making and problem solving it's by i think john brockman Uh, And I was reading it one summer in Indonesia and it actually changed my whole perspective of decision-making. And I think on your previous podcast, Jed Davies was talking a little bit about decision-making in that sense. I'm sure he read a similar book to that one. Um, But to summarize effective forecasting, it's basically predicting how you will feel after you've made the decision you're going to make. Um, And from the research, humans are actually terrible at being able to predict how we feel after an outcome. A typical example would be uh, being or we're trying to eat healthy food, and then there's a pizza in front of you, and you think before you eat the pizza, oh my gosh, this is everything I need, um, and you kind of avoid the the forecasting aspect, which is how am I going to feel after? And quite often, I, I'm not sure about you, but I'll eat something I shouldn't eat and feel terrible after. But uh, the affecting forecasting skill is to be able to identify before you you eat the food, or before you make the coaching decision, or before you take a player out as a sub because you're upset. How will you feel after? And if you can gauge how you'll feel after, then you should be making more logical, sensible, smarter, long-term happiness decisions.
0: So how does that work on training pitch? What are some examples there of effective forecasting that you can you can kind of look at before the session and maybe ask yourself?
2: Uh Okay, so a key one for me is more, is during the moment. And I think a lot of the time, uh the, the the mistakes with effective forecasting are when your emotions are running high. So when you're on the coaching pitch and a player is making mistakes or you're on the or on the sideline in a game and a player isn't playing very well. Um or a player is training very well um and you wanna overpraise and you wanna go out of your way to make sure he knows about it, but isn't necessarily right for him. Um, so a typical example on a training pitch would be uh, maybe a player is, you're asking to play in the pockets, receive and turn and, and create chances. And during training, he's repeatedly making mistakes. Uh, and then the emotional decision at the time is to go on the pitch and say, what are you doing? Or shout or pull him out the session, you know, or criticize him in front of everyone. But if you can switch your mind on to how you're going to feel after and how the player will feel after, you take the moment to say, okay, uh, if I actually belittle this person or take him out or sh- Shouted him on the pitch, and maybe I'm actually going to feel like I've done something wrong after. Feel guilty, and then have to apologise and know that it's wrong. If you can stop yourself and identify that's how you'll feel after, then you can control the decision to go. Okay, maybe I don't need to do this right now. Maybe I need to leave him in and talk to him on the side after. Um, So that's kind of the, the those kind of situations where effective forecasting can come in really handy. Some of the key mistakes we tend to make is overestimating how good something will feel or how bad something will feel. Or how long it's going to last for? Uh, again, in a in our, we have lots of examples outside of football uh, regarding like uh, how do you feel after a breakup? You know, the typical thing is oh, I'm never going to get over it. I'm going to be depressed for six years, uh, and that's like the mentality. But actually, the research shows that breakups are the breakup feeling is much shorter than expected and the, the feeling is not as bad as you'd expect. Now, what needs to happen is there needs to be more research in and around sport into how this links to sporting behaviours. Because A lot of the research is outside of sport. But something that I've managed to do is kind of to have, a, have an understanding of how it works for me and now being able to take a step back and calculate how I'm going to feel after an event has really helped me in terms of managing players' emotions and managing my own emotions on the sideline.
0: How can coaches use this as a tool to align decision-making with the game model? So a lot of what we're talking about is is kind of freedom and allowing them to be creative and be themselves. But then how do you, yeah, how do you align it towards the collective?
2: Okay, so the key, the key starting point is what play, how do you want your players to feel when executing the skill that you're looking for? So, for example, if the game model is based around position, then you need the first thing is that you want players to feel really, really well when the team keeps possession. That would be your starting point. Um and then working backwards, it would be about the the praise you use and the feeling that you give them every time they make that or they have that decision that's correct in line with your game model. Um, and then explaining to them that that their decision making on the pitch must be towards that one feeling all of the time. So for example, I think if your game model is possession based as I said, you may set targets of uh, you want to dominate the game by having 60% possession or 65% possession, ideally. And then you need to gauge the player's mentality towards when we achieve that, this is the feeling that we must have. And then you can create that as a coach by having big celebrations or lots of applause or the players discussing how well it was or showing footage of how good it looked. There's some of the key things we use to make sure that the players prioritise and get that feeling of how amazing it is to keep possession of the ball. Now, that may be different in a youth area where you're trying to build individuals, whereby you now may say to the players, you're talking to them about the feeling they must have or the feeling you can give them when they beat players 1v1 in wide areas or when they can shoot from outside the area and score or the the centre-back can play out rather than just kick it down the pitch. Um, And then making sure that, yeah, that you discuss the feeling that they they are looking for and link it through association to the action. Would that then work...
0: In aligning then with post game or or a review or a video session, to where you're now being a little bit more rather than picking out the mistakes, and this is how you can improve, picking out being a bit more deliberate with picking out the good moments.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. We use video a lot for that, and I think uh, like a key example would be the, one of the first games where we really dominated the game. I mean, I've cut all the clips of where we had possession for one minute, two minutes, or three minutes, and cut all those clips and put them in a in like a in one video. Um, and played them back with constant praise and constant approval of how well they were playing and how well the game model looked like the first team, Um, posted them online so then they were getting praise from other people. And we've made it like a a feeling now where they make a conscious decision to want to have possession of the ball um, because they know what the outcome is going to be and how they'll feel when they do it, as opposed to when they're not keeping the ball, the criticism that comes with that and and the disappointment, Mm. again, will help them guide their decision-making throughout the game
0: so you you do a lot or you've a lot of your work is the mental side from a coach improving mentally as a coach Yeah, you're working daily at a high level with the orlando pirates how much time do you dedicate to reading reflection improving yourself
2: not enough that i would probably like to uh i mean where i'm that's why i'm trying to do things like write a book I'm not. I'm not writing a book to make loads of money or get it published. Don't anything. don't write it, really it to make loads that. of money. You won't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That'll save me there then. <laughs> no, it's more. It's more a way of focusing on something that you will be disciplined in where you're going to learn. And I found that where I've had to write about stuff and you have to almost act like an expert of in a topic, you then have to learn because you can't write about something that you're not really sure of. Um, so yeah, that's why that's where that's coming. It gives me an hour or two a day to really focus on what the things I on the areas I want to I want to develop and have more knowledge in. Um, luckily, I'm at a, in a place where I'm getting kind of instant feedback and instant reflection on things that are happening. So where I'm coaching an under 23s reserve side, and we're playing every week. Um, and then as well as that, I'm doing analysis for the first team and also learning maybe twice a week because we're playing two games a week at the moment. So the, the instant feedback that I'm getting from decision-making and from analysis and from, and from coaching style, I'm getting quite a lot. Uh, and the other phases in my life, I've had to do a lot more uh, reflection on myself and watching my own videos back all the time because I haven't had as much coaching on the pitch um, and as much game time to analyze. So yeah, fortunately, I'm getting a lot of instant feedback, but I could definitely do with a few more hours in the day to to do some more reflection and some reading that would definitely be great
0: you seem to be just be your timeline you seem to value happiness means a lot to
2: you oh 100% happiness is everything and i think like i've i've created a relationship with the players that now understand that the happiness has to come first and actually the creating the link between winning and happiness has been has been kind of key for me especially in the recent months i think it was easy to go too far on the side of being happy and then the players look at you and say well if I'm happy in my life, why do I need to work any harder? Because I'm already happy. But the skill recently has become in relating uh, winning and happiness because through winning allows you to do more things with your life, it has you more experiences, it allows you to travel, it allows you to look after your family and all the things that are important by coming through winning. Because if you're not going to win as an individual and as a team, those things may be harder to achieve. But it's very challenging because as a coach, your job is to win football, matches or develop players. But as a as a human being, our job is to make other people happier. So combining the two has just been absolutely critical in terms of my development um and making sure that you can achieve both. Uh that's been very key. Do you see
0: I think happiness and football is a although it's a highly rewarding business and it's an extremely passionate business, it's a pretty ruthless business, especially in, in England. Where there's so yeah. much competition, and do you find that when you worked there, did you find it was it was more difficult to get that happiness piece?
2: Uh, I think football in general, everywhere, it's difficult to get the uh, the happiness feeling that maybe that maybe you're looking for. But I think the key is getting someone's life together and understanding that the life the life they have outside of football is far more important than football. But football also can enhance the life you have outside of football, if that makes sense. So whilst the, your life is, is is the your family, your friends, your lifestyle, the play, the area you live in, the food you eat, the things you're doing for your experiences, while that's important, football can enhance that. So football is almost the can almost be the 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 vehicle to supporting your happiness and living the life that you want to live. Um, but yeah, it is very difficult in a cutthroat industry. But my message to the players is always be happy outside. So whatever happens in football you still have the life that you want and you still have the things that you value within your within your life.
0: Can I answer this here? How much is, has been exposed to different cultures? How much has that helped you grow as a person?
2: Yeah, as a person, massively. I changed so much when I moved abroad first. I think I've been through some things that I didn't think I would be able to manage. I think I spent a week in Zambia with no electricity and no water where mosquitoes have malaria. And it was like 38, 40 degrees at night. Uh, So you can't. There's no aircon or fan because there's no electricity. But you can't put water on your face, and you can't open the windows because you could get bitten. So, yeah, those experiences like that definitely made me, made me really like grow strength and grow. uh, And you realize what's important. You realize that the things that you used to stress about are not really the be all and end all. And now I can clearly define exactly the things that I need in my life to be happy. Um, and everything else around that, including football, is a bonus. And I think whereas before I was thinking that football was the be-all and end-all, and if I wasn't Jose Mourinho, then I wasn't going to be happy. Whereas now I think I'm probably at my full uh, as happy as I can be. And all that's going to happen is there will be additions around the happiness. But I don't think I'll ever be happier than I am now, even if I do win a Champions League or, or anything like that.
0: And then the last one, what advice would you have for young coaches who are starting out?
2: I think get ahead early. I think if I could advise uh, any coaches or any young person, in fact, in general, I think the key is to get ahead early uh, so that then you can enjoy the rest of the journey. Because I, for me personally, I don't want to be studying all my whole life in terms of having pressure for exams, having pressure for qualifications, uh, especially with the financial demands sometimes. So for me, the key was to get ahead very early. I think I got my master's at 23 or 24 and I've got my UEFA also at 24. Which meant that now I can focus on coaching the way I want to coach and learning for myself and experiencing. But those things are what; those qualifications are what got me to the point where now I can travel and now I can get a job without having too much, too much pressure or too much time unemployed. Um, so yes, yeah, so the key for me was to get ahead as early as possible and then go and enjoy the journey after that.
0: Michael, thanks so much. Absolutely brilliant. Hurry up and write that book.
2: Wow. <laughs> no, thank you very much for having me. It's been a, it's an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks so much to Michael for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I told you there would be plenty to think about after it. So yeah, for me, I really, really enjoyed that. First of all, definitely guilty of outcome biased. That's what he was talking about at the start, judging the decision based on the outcome rather than the quality of the decision. And I reflected on that when I worked at the youth level, especially a player who maybe scored a goal in a game. And it maybe was a goal that was down to a large amount of luck rather than, you know, the skill that would have been required at a higher level where time and space and luck might not have been there. And and letting that slip, did that prevent that player from getting better or did that prevent that player from being exposed to challenges that they're going to come at the next level? There's a good chance that it did. And I think, you know, we're very, very quick at the next level to say, well, they weren't good enough or no, they're just not up to par. But... You know, maybe we should take the time to follow up with players about those types of situations, and it's difficult because you know when you go back to it, well, it's very very difficult if a if a striker does have a lot of luck and they should have struck a ball a certain way, and you know, and the ball goes in the back of the net anyway. It's very very difficult as a youth coach, I think, when when everyone's cheering on the sidelines and everyone's excited and the referee is telling everyone to go back for kickoff, it would be very, very difficult for you to make an impact as a coach to say, well, that's wrong because everything in that young player's life is telling them that it's correct what they did. But maybe then it's the timing of it and how you do it. Maybe then it's a little bit of use of technology. It's maybe going back and looking at video or revisiting it after the game or revisiting during the week with the player and building that trust. Does that allow you to go a little bit deeper? With their understanding of the game, and it probably does so you know maybe the two are connected, the better the relationships, the better the trust, the more you can do with that player, and the more maybe you can help their understanding not just tactically but also technically of the game and We spend so much time talking about what players can't do, and I think coach education probably doesn't do us any favors in the assessment process whenever we're we're having to stop training sessions on this isn't right, that's not right, fault, 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 fault. And reality is we should be looking and testing our understanding at finding success and finding solutions and not just finding fault. And working through those with the players, which again, that goes back to trust. But I also think then using your staff and aligning your staff. We had Douglam off on here last week and he was talking about how to effectively use the people that you work alongside maybe this is an area where you talk to one another about it and maybe you try and challenge one another when their ideas during discussions things like that there so yeah we would love to know your thoughts on it as always at gary kareen on twitter at gary kareen on instagram what you thought if you agree, disagreed, if you're reading anything that's that's going along those lines, please share. I would love to um improve my knowledge of it as well. So big thanks to Michael. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Carnin
2: on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com